0: Good morning, Uh, so welcome to Engine this morning. My name's Emma Robertson, for anybody who doesn't know me, um, I'm Chief Executive of Engine Transformation, uh, with a digital data and insight part of the Engine family, which is all represented here today. So I'm really delighted to welcome you here this morning um, to join us in the latest in a series of events that we've been putting on, where we invite guests from outside of mainstream business to come and share their perspectives and experiences with us to let us step outside of our business bubble for at least an hour or two. Um, And I can absolutely assure you that we can step outside of the Brexit bubble uh, for at least the next 90 minutes. So this is a safe zone. (coughs) Excuse me. Um, So for a man who needs no introduction, I'm now gonna make a clumsy attempt at providing one. We are very privileged this morning to be joined by Jason Fox. Jason's bio and achievements are as astonishing as they are impressive um, and lengthy. Having joined the Royal Marines Commandos at age 16, he then spent the next two decades uh, in the forces um, and ending in special forces, dealing with things like uh, you know, everyday business challenges like hostage rescue and uh, counter-terrorism, counter-narco, um, and everything from learning dog handling to uh, marine combat, which I think sounds suspiciously James Bond-like to me. Um, Since leaving, his breadth of achievements have continued Um, And actually, they're so diverse and impressive, I actually had to do some verification to make sure I wasn't going to have a Wikipedia moment this morning. Um, But ranging from starting an amazing charity, Rock to Recovery, um, which helps support uh, servicemen and veterans and their families in distress, uh, from setting a new world record for rowing the Atlantic, uh, taking a group to the North Pole for charity. Um, This is the one I had to check. uh, Being part of a four-man dive team that found the lost treasure of the 17th century pirate, Captain Kidd true story, (laughs) and obviously being part of the acclaimed SAS series uh, Who Dares Wins. Um, But I'm sure, as Jason will be the first to share with us, uh, the edited highlights can often belie the reality of what it is to live that life at normal speed, um, and the challenges and the um, obstacles that you have to face along the way. And in his recent book, um, that's that's a lot of what Jason has been touching on around his his struggles with PTSD and depression, um, and how he's overcome them. So I think that's something that would be great to learn from today as well. Um, So... uh, Without further ado, I think we've got a little bit of a clip to share, uh, a little bit of uh, Jason in action.
1: Thanks. Sorry. we're in social forces, You need to be comfortable in uncomfortable environments. All operations you do are calculated risks. And the worst course of action is always you're all going to die. When you're in those shee situations, there's a lot that goes through your mind. You need to know that you can control your emotions and get on with the
0: job, even though your minds tell you that this is not what me. Welcome to the stage, Jason. All right. Good morning. Um, so, the intention is to be uh, formal, this, in, informal this morning. I uh, say so this is a 20-slide PowerPoint deck. Um, I'm going to kick off by asking Jason a couple of questions and then quite quickly hand over to the room. Um, so I'm very much hoping you're all going to do my work for me this morning. Um, but just to, to kick off, Jason, like I said, your, your bio is, is remarkable. Um, and starting at the age of 16 um, and signing up when you did, what, what led you to do that?
1: Um, I was crap at school, basically. No, there's a a couple of different reasons one was I grew up in Luton I don't know if anyone knows that place there's an incentive to leave it quite quickly Um, and I didn't really I didn't relish school I didn't I wasn't sort of that way inclined I wasn't academic I was quite more about the outdoors getting out playing sport that sort of thing and my dad was a Royal Marine as well a long time ago. I don't remember it, but you know he used to tell us stories, me and my brothers, about you know, his time in the forces. So I figured I, wasn't gonna, I didn't do well at school. I needed to leave where I was growing up because I was going to get into a lot of trouble. And I figured the best way for me to do that would be to join the military. And obviously with him being in the Marines, that was what sort of led me down that path. And that's, that's how I did it, really. I mean, it was, a, it was an epic. I was 16 years old. I didn't know my backside from anything else. And it was horrendous. <laughs>
0: And um, the sort of you come across as someone who's got a real clarity of purpose and direction. Is that something that you've always had, or did the military give you that?
1: I think that I think the military probably gave, helped me find it. I, I probably, I, I mean, when I did join up, uh, the one thing I kept thinking about was I will I will pass Royal Marines training. I will be a Royal Marines commander. I can remember vi- visualising it. Now I didn't know anything about visualization then. It was just something I did as a as a kid, basically, and so. As, as hard as I did find it, I think that gave you know it, it was clear in my mind exactly what I wanted to do, no matter how, how difficult it was and how uncomfortable and it was for a sixteen-year-old kid that doesn't know how to iron and wash his own clothes. It was it was hard, and felt that was the hardest part about it. To be honest, with
0: you. <laughs> I'm pretty sure having watched SAS, Who Des Wins, that there were harder bits, but uh, I'll take you on on the ironing challenge. So. um you made the transition from Royal Marine Commandos to Special Forces just around the time of 9-11 when our whole political agenda, in particular, our military agenda changed so significantly overnight.
2: Yeah.
0: What was that experience like and, and was, it, was it something you anticipated like, in terms of...
1: I'd, already, I'd, I'd done just pretty much just under 10 years in the Marines and it was about 90 under ten years, yeah, maybe a little bit less. But it was about '99. I put in for I, I put in for special forces selection. So you fill out a form that gets put into the system, and you know you have to wait your time. And it, it actually took me. So that was in '99, and then in 2001, I was told, right, you're going to be loaded onto a course here. I think it was at the beginning of 2002, and then obviously in between that, 9/11 happened, and everything just completely changed. So as the initial Sort of fallout from nine eleven was being sort of conducted by the military, by the special forces, and and the conventional military. I was actually I started selection in January, so I joined the special forces in two thousand and two, and actually the first nine months of that was me on course, wondering what I'm missing out on because that's how you feel, you know, you you want to join the military, you want to be used operationally. So I was actually like, oh, I'm going to miss everything now, and then ironically, whilst I'm on the selection process, and then that finishes, and I which is hard. And then you go, you go back and you join a squadron and actually it turns out that it wasn't going to be a flash in the pan. We we're going to fix everything in two seconds. It obviously went on for years and, and I was a part of that. So the next 10 years of my career was spent basically war fighting, you know, and conducting counter you know, counter-narcotics, all, all the stuff that's linked in with that over in, you know, faraway places, Central Asia, Middle East. So yeah, it was... It was a mental period, to be honest, as we all know.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that's an amazing reaction that I'm sure a lot of people will be thinking, how can I get far enough away from that rather than I'm going to miss out? So, yeah, I know. I
1: don't, yeah. Uh, I don't know what that would be like.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, so sort of bringing, in, bringing some of your experiences back down to sort of how we, we translate some of those same sort of experiences in the business world. Um, I think sort of when we were talking earlier, one of the reflections is, we use a lot of phrases in business quite lightly that mean something very different in the military. I think you sort of mentioned, that we'll often have days when we're gonna give everything blood, sweat and tears. Um, and you know, you're, you're experiencing that on a reasonably regular basis. And I yeah. think it'd be great to sort of understand, sort of from your insight, what do you think that business, the business world can learn um, from the way the military conducts itself?
1: I mean, difficult that because essentially in the military we're quite lucky with regard to like all a lot of the budget is put into training we spend most of our time in you know learning and development basically and it's practical learning as well so we'll look at what we need to do we'll look at what we're about to sort of undertake and then we'll go out and train and train and train and train and train. And then what we do is we look at everything that could go wrong, and we train to do. We we train to fail sometimes. Basically, we continually train to fail and look at how we solve a problem whilst we're in the middle of something falling apart. So we that what that then does is allows us to have a flexible mindset. So we've we're almost comfortable in those situations when they fall apart because we know that we've got we've got a bank of knowledge, whether it's practically we've done it, which means you can visualise something or we've talked about it, at least then we have an idea of how we're going to get ourselves out of those situations. So I think a lot of it is like being able to spend a lot of time in L&D, basically, you know, developing who we are. Yeah. And as we're doing that practically, it also it conditions your mind to deal with those situations as well. So if you imagine... So I did 10 years in the Marines, essentially. In that 10 years, I didn't see a lot of action. I basically spent most of my time travelling the world playing sport, getting really drunk, and also training all the time for war. Now, that's me learning what I need to do technically on the ground, and I need to know what the procedures are when things go wrong, but also what it's doing is, in my subconscious, it's telling me, at some point in your career, you're probably gonna experience something that's pretty horrific. So when it does happen, when that horrific does happen and things start going wrong, I'm, I can remember, I'd be like, ah, okay, cool that's fine, I don't care about that. You know, you'd see stuff going on that was really, really, you know, if you saw it now outside, it would probably traumatize you because you're not ready for it. Whereas I, you know, I and many other people before, after and around me were, were conditioned to, to accept that that's what's going to happen. And when it does happen, it doesn't really matter. Mm-hmm. So a lot of it's to do with preparing yourself. We, we always prepare, we prepare for everything. And I think that's one thing that might be slightly overlooked in, in the corporate world to a certain degree.
0: Yeah, absolutely, I think we, we have a lovely phrase of um, fail fast, <laughs> which generally means carry on doing <coughs> what you're doing very slowly.
1: All right. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah.
0: All right. Um, so, and I think, you know, touching on training and development there, I think, um, you know, a, a universal experience can tend to be, from a business perspective, you, you set your strategy, you work out what you want to do, and then training and development is additive to that, and yeah. often the first thing that goes off of budgets maybe the second thing if we're having a tough year. Um, so sort of building that foundation on the training and development of teams, does that sort of introduce a sort of a, an ability to, to change and pivot sort of in the moment?
1: Yeah, I mean, what happens is, the, the operational side feed into the, the training departments. We, I mean, the people that run the training departments have worked, you know, we all work together, and then every now and again you get farmed out to work in a training. No one really wants to do it, but you go and do it and it's a nice break. But what happens is when you're, on the, when you're on operations, you will be away for six months. Now, in that six months, you could probably go out on an operation every other night. That's quite high tempo. It might be as little as two times a week, depending on what's going on. So you're essentially going out and fighting that amount of times in a six month period. What happens at the end of each operation, no matter what your task is, what your mission is, You'll come, and whether you succeed or fail, you come back from that mission, and immediately, as you walk, as an example, if you're walking off the back of a helicopter, you'll walk straight into a hangar. You'll be covered. You'll be sitting in the in your kit you've been wearing all night. You'll be covered in blood, sweat, and tears. You'll walk straight into the hangar, and there'll be a load of people waiting for you with like aerial imagery, mapping. They've got everything marked out on that. And then what happens is a group of people is you, Each team will get up. The team leader will get up and talk about what the team did. They'll go through that. Then each individual soldier or operator will get up and talk about what he did and why he did that. But then there's someone at the back taking notes, you know, marking down everything that happened. And what it is, it's called a hot debrief, but it's not like a witch hunt. It's not like people are looking to point the finger as to why certain things didn't happen. And bearing in mind, we do this even if we succeed in a mission. And what, it, what they do is they compile it and put it into a PowerPoint present. I know we hate PowerPoint presentations, but that's a you know it's a good <laughs> Not way of just like you. no, it's horrendous. I hate them, but it, it's called a lessons learned PowerPoint presentation. That then gets farmed out to our unit and all the other units that we work with within a within a tight knit community. So the American SF, the Canadians, the Aussies, the Kiwis. And then what happens is that then gets given to the training departments. Now they look through that and they're like, oh, right, the next, on the next time we run a scenarios day or whatever you want to call it, we're going to implement all these lessons learned into that. So you start and what it is, is you just basically, it's almost like learn from our mistakes, not your own. And it's just a grown up way of developing it, the training department, it's a grown up way of developing everyone's knowledge on what happens and, and how the enemy, you know, whatever, however you want to brand that, how the enemy and what they're doing as well, what we saw them doing. So how do we like counter what they're doing? It's it's just a it's a good way of doing it. It's it's something that's still done to this day in the in the special forces.
0: Excellent. So I'm going to take this moment quite early on to open up to the floor because um, I absolutely know you haven't come here to listen to me this morning. Um, I think we have some microphones. Do we have some early questions?
1: Go. Uh, yeah, Hi there. Um, I work in the military, but I'm not in the military, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, so we're looking at sort of quite a lot of things about leadership. I just wonder, would you say the Special Forces operate on a mission command structure or a command and control structure, and, and what would be the benefit of it? I uh, thought so I'd open up with a nice easy one just to get it going. Bloody <laughs> no. hell. Um, it's more mission... I was talking about this earlier. It's difficult to say how they operate because there is a, there's a command structure in place so there's like i was you know i left as a sergeant which means i was a senior team leader within a squadron now a squadron is about 25 guys it's a strategic asset which means it delivers at ministerial or top brass level but it does it in attack it does it tactically which means it's people on the ground getting their getting their hands dirty now we have an orders process where we talk about how, what we're going to do before we go on the ground and my oc will stand up and say right our mission tonight and he's in charge he has executive you know decisions on things now the mission's said twice it said twice for a reason because no matter even though we're going to talk about a plan no matter what happens all that really matters is that mission once it, once you get on the ground because everyone's so highly tuned and so highly trained as a leader you don't really have to do anything only every once in a while when something goes drastically wrong that you it's a, it's on your shoulders to make a decision nothing it's it's like this organic sort of animal that just moves and does its own thing we, again it comes down to the luxury of having highly trained highly motivated individuals and we've got a lot of budget to play with when it comes to training so there is, you know, it is, there's command and control, and there's a, you know, there's a command structure. But essentially, everyone knows what they're doing, and you don't really need to start standing up and screaming and shouting about what needs to be done because everyone knows what needs to be done. And also, if something goes wrong, most people know what needs to get needs to change to then, you know, deal with what's happened on the battlefield. I mean, it's a difficult question to answer, but it's it's very much like yes, there is, pe- there are people there that make decisions and make sure nothing goes off track. But essentially, once you're on the ground, it's sort of left, you're left to your own devices to a certain degree. Every now and again, there'll be decisions where you have to feed back up the chain for them to be like, right, yeah, get on with that. But otherwise, it's sort of like pretty free flowing. That's sort of what I would have assumed because yeah. your training is such a high level, you've got to make decisions on the ground without having to ask somebody else. So. It's, it's too, yeah, I mean, and, to be honest, it's, it's like a, it is it's like a bit more of a grown up environment. Yeah, I was a team leader, but I could be you know two foot from another guy and miss something because it's such a hectic environment. And I wouldn't expect that guy to then turn around to me and say, mate, can we go and do this? I expect him to take control and be like, right, everyone needs to get down behind this wall because something is going on over there. It's, it's there, there's a lot of free, you know, if someone's being a complete dick, then yeah, you sort of take charge, but most of the time, in fact, nearly all of the time, you would you don't need to do that. It actually makes being a leader a lot easier. Thanks very much. Thank
0: you. And I, I know you've sort of spoken before about the tension between the perfect recruit being somebody who can follow orders far enough but show the initiative.
1: Yeah, you sort of you do want you want the best and worst in everyone just to be slightly there. So you, you want someone to be slightly rogue every now and again, so they've got the. They're cocky enough to make those decisions mm-hmm. and they're cocky enough to, you know, maybe, maybe question you when you might have seen yeah. something from a completely different angle and actually not a very good angle. Yeah. You're making a call and they're like, hang on a minute, no, mate, I've seen something and you're like, all right, thanks for that. It's, it's, it's quite a nice environment to be in and unfortunately mm-hmm. I'm not in it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Great, we have a question at the back.
2: Hi, I was just wondering, obviously your job is pretty intense and um, I think to say it, it could be stressful is an understatement. I was just wondering what tactics you have in place to protect your well-being and how much time you dedicate to that.
1: I thought you said my job was putting up tents. Then. <laughs> <laughs> I was about that. that was part of it. <laughs> I, see, I, genu- I honestly thought that. Um,
0: Goodness, arning, tense. There's, this is a whole new one. It's
1: got, um, it's difficult to, I mean, now it's, it, you know, the well-being thing, it's, it sort of was paid lip service back in the day when I was sort of in, um, it wasn't that anyone didn't care, it was just the tempo of operations is so intense and all you really care about is delivering. You don't think about the welfare. It did start to come in towards the end of my career, and that's what highlighted it to me when I needed to start looking at what was going on. Now, in like in the now, they're actually a lot better, and it is all about well-being. It's all about looking after the guys, the guys and girls, because essentially, if you don't, then your operational output is is sort of buggered, To be honest with you, because you need to have you need to have investment in people's well-being and welfare, otherwise they're just not going to operate properly. So it was a bit old school when I was in. I was in in the transition phase of of it being proper dinosaur old school and actually trying to come out the other side and look after people. But it was in its infancy for me. So there wasn't really much there. There was a system in place, but it was very much one size fits all as opposed to tailoring it to the individual because the military forgets that It's full of individuals. It likes to think of itself as just this one thing where everyone conforms to the same way of doing stuff. So, yeah, it wasn't really there, but it is now, and it's getting better. It can always be better, it's getting better. And it's more about just talking about, you know, how you feel and what you've been exposed to and what that means to you, giving it the respect it deserves and then parking it and moving on using it as a, it's like a learning tool as well.
0: And I know you've mentioned before that you, you were a bit of a non-believer in depression and PTSD in the military was, context.
1: <clears throat> yeah, I was. I was sort of, you know, I'd done God knows how many tours and been involved in all sorts of crazy stuff. And I remember here, you know, you hear people about them talking about, you know, they feel they've got PTSD or whatever, the, you know, whatever that was. And I'd be like, that's a load of crap. I've been involved in all this and I've, I'm, I'm all right. And obviously, you know, you fast forward like six months and I'm eating a massive slice of, slice of humble pie, because I felt weird.
0: Oh, I've got a lady down the front. There's a microphone.
2: My, uh, my name is Ruth. I am the chief executive of a charity called Women in Sport. So I've actually got two questions <laughs> for you, if that's OK. My first is about, obviously, women in the military. Um... One of the things that we campaign for at Women in Sport is more women in leadership roles. And I'm interested to know how you think the military might be different, or if it would be, if there were more women at leadership level, let's say more women than men even, or equal numbers. Um, But I also have a bit more of a kind of personal Mm -hmm. question. My cousin uh, was in the Marines, but he suffered a brain injury. And I have very mixed feelings about leadership in the military as a result of that. I think in one sense it saved him from a very difficult situation when he was a teenager. And I think he joined for some of the same reasons that you did, but now he can't live a normal life because of his injury. And I think there's such a complex leadership challenge there when you're managing and leading people whose lives can literally change because of a decision that you make. And I'm just interested to know what you think about, you know, the how we can learn from that challenge.
1: Right. Okay, so... <laughs>
2: <laughs> good morning. Uh,
1: <clears throat> I know. It's probably only just nine o'clock. Um, women in the military is a good thing. It's, it's going to be... It's a slow burner. You know, they... It's not... It's only been recently that they've actually started to take on more and more roles, so the leadership thing's just gonna come. It's, it's, it's not gonna happen overnight. You can't just say, right, let's grab a load of people and put them in as leaders, because essentially, you, that's unfair, because you've not given them the opportunity to progress and see what the army is all about in other areas. So it's gonna happen. It's just, it, 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 we're, in, we're in the transition phase, so it's not gonna be like that. Um, I. And, and the other thing is, is, you know, it's you know it's going to happen because we're in you know we're we're a society that's growing up. We're becoming you know we're becoming more rounded, but again, it's it doesn't happen overnight. You know, there's going to be an awful lot of pressure and sort of psychological pressure on those first women. We talk about the role you know the combat roles now because it's so topical. All eyes are on that now, which means the the girls that are going into those wanting to go into those roles have got. It's not, the, it's not the physical side of it that's going to be the problem. There's, there's Of course there's women out there that are strong enough. There's men out there that aren't strong enough. Yeah, it's, it's the psychological pressure that's going to be hard for them to sort of adapt to. Once they've adapted to it, they'll, they'll, they'll get into those positions and they'll fly as does everyone else because it's not really about men and women, it's about the individuals. It's about what that individual brings to the party. I don't see it as a, a, a male and female thing. I don't see it as women against men or men against women. It's about if you're the right person for that job and you've got the aptitude for it, you go and do it. Um, going back to... What was the second question?
2: I suppose that the complexity of of uh, leadership, yeah. you know, when the stakes are so high, I suppose. I
1: mean, that is unfortunately war fighting is war fighting and we are humans in that environment and we do not always make the right decisions and you make a decision you don't make a decision as a leader to because you want to you want blokes to get injured or you want them to get harmed you make a decision and you f- if you and you do it because you think it's right it might not always be right and the fact is when you're in a war zone it is probably the fastest changing environment you will ever be in because, because essentially you've got two groups of people trying to kill each other, really. And the, each group is trying to outwit the other one and you'll find that it's the fastest, it's the far, it's the, you'll never learn quicker in any other environment than the, than on, than in the battlefield because it is, because your life depends on it. Unfortunately, it is a case, you join the military, I, I joined the military and I was like, right, I could die or I could lose bits of, I'm, I'm lucky. But it has happened and it does happen and it's, for me it was a case of living by the sword and dying by the sword to a certain degree. However, that said, I do know a lot of guys who are senior leaders in the in the military or were senior leaders in the military and they have got serious issues... In their mind, not because of what they've seen, but because of what they've been involved in, Mm -hmm. and the decisions that they've made have actually had a a negative impact on a lot of people. So, but it is what it is. There's nothing that's ever going to change, you know. As far, basically, if we continue, if we as humans continue to fight, there will always be fallout because it's not Mm -hmm. a nice thing to be involved in, and it's just you know, it's a hard, hard question to answer, but it is just a byproduct of going out scrapping
0: thank you there's a lady here
2: thanks hello jason um when you left the military after two decades um it must have been a heck of a change um and i'm really interested in you know how you cope with that because from going from a very fast pace where you're learning very fast and very quickly it must have seemed quite dull at first but also as well if you could go back now and tell yourself then a really great piece of advice that you learned along the way what would it be
1: yeah, so it was horrendous <laughs> <laughs> it was like the worst thing that i would ever done it's the hardest thing i've ever done is learn to become a civilian again i didn't i wasn't really a civilian in the first place i joined up when i was 16 i didn't know i didn't know shit really but um yeah it was it was the hardest darkest thing i've ever done to be honest. And. It was the the best bit of advice would be to like go back and I say it to lads now and friends of mine that are coming out and I'm like right you're about to embark on a on a massive journey and most journeys should be fun so just see it as a fun thing you're not gonna you might not sort of meet the right people to begin with but you're just meeting people and you're learning something about yourself you're actually learning about well, who you're going to become next which should be a fun thing so it's about trying to turn what you see as a negative into a positive and it's a difficult thing to do but it's the only thing you should be doing because there's no point moping around going oh that didn't work or i don't like this or this is boring or this is dull it's just like okay i have found out a little bit about that and it's not for me that's it should be like it's not for me i'm going to move on and try something else it's not a failure it's just you're learning who you are because you've spent 20 years or however long it may be in a very structured environment and and actually out, out, um, when I say structured environment, I got told when to go to the dentist. I got told when to go to the doctors. I didn't have to pay for that shit either, which is awesome. <laughs> now I've got like, I get the tax man sending me shit that I don't even understand. And I'm like, ah, what the hell is going on here? So, <laughs> yeah, you know, it, it's a, it's a it, but that's another part of, you know, it's, it's growth, isn't it? I'm learning what I need to do to survive in this environment now. So it should be a fun thing. Tax isn't, by the way.
0: <laughs> hello to our friends from HMRC in the room <laughs> 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 Great,
1: I didn't say it was bad <laughs> I just it. apparently out of death
0: and taxes taxes are by far the worst <laughs> um, hi there you mentioned um, a couple of questions back about having a really motivated team whilst you're in intense training and then everyone you're you've got around you is really motivated. How do you keep everyone motivated when they're in that kind of situation?
1: Again, for us, it's, we're lucky. They are just, they are motivated. I mean, again, another plus point for us is people trying to kill you. That's a big motivator, <laughs> but, um, uh, but um, a, lot of, a lot of it is to do with engagement with the team. If, you're, if you invest in them your time, then they're going to invest it back. That keeps them motivated. If you're loyal to them, they're going to be loyal back. Loyalty breeds loyalty. And if you trust them, they're going to trust you. So it's, more, it's not about motivating them like slapping them on the back. It's about how you are with those people on a, on a sort of subconscious level. It's about how they see you and how you see them, I'd say. And, and that in itself is a big motivator because they feel invested in. And that's a lot of what happens. Yes, I, I know we've got highly trained guys and we're getting shot at, but, you know, it's, about how, it's more about how you engage with them that motivates them, really.
0: It's really interesting what you touched on earlier about the sort of restatement of the mission. Is that something that everybody involved would have sight of? Because I wonder the extent to which the, the mission in business is held too high and it becomes task too quickly.
1: So the mission, I'll explain this. So the orders process is basically, a, it's a brief, it's a brief on how you're going to do something. And what it is, it's, it's almost like a story. But at the top of it is the mission and it's said twice. It said, you know, as an example, your mission is to save the life of the hostage. Then there's a pause. Then he says, "Your, your, our job tonight is to save the life of the hostage. Then we move on to how we're going to do it. Then what happens in that is like you talk about each phase of that operation or that mission, that task. Then what happens is you come away from that and it's still in the back of your head. All that really matters is to make sure we rescue this dude. And then what happens then is you break down into your team. So you go into like break off groups and then you start talking about what you need to do on the ground as a team, what your tasks are. And then you talk through what each individual person has to do as his own individual task. Still with the back in the back of the mind that the mission is all that really matters. So it might not go according to plan and it won't. And there's a you know, Tyson's got an awesome analogy, everyone's got a plan until they get punched in the face. That's (laughs) that's true, and it's it's true on the battlefield. We've got a great plan, but it might not go according to to plan. But as long as everyone knows what their individual tasks are and what their team tasks Mm -hmm. are, that then feeds into the mission and it just again it naturally will happen if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Hi there. Um, I was just wondering is there is there room for self-doubt in in the operations?
0: And if there is, how do you deal with it?
1: Uh, there's room for it because we're all human, so it's going to happen. And it's it's just about accepting that there's an element of self-doubt come I've, 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 I I I I spoke I think I mentioned it in the book. I'm on I'm on an operation one night. It's, it's horrific. Someone's already dead and it's about 20 seconds into us running off the back of a helicopter and I'm lying in a ditch as a, T, as a TL or team leader and I'm changing my magazine because, you know, I've run out of bullets in one of them. And I'm laid there and I suddenly get overwhelmed with this sensation that I want to be 10 years old again back home with my mum. And it's, you know, it's, a, it's a true. It's what happened. I felt that. It was an image that came into my head and that's fear and probably a bit of self-doubt creeping in what I did in that moment was I actually sort of like slapped myself. I didn't actually slap myself, you know what I mean. And, and I said to myself, hang on a minute, you're a, you're, a, you're a senior team leader within a squadron of professional soldiers. You know, you're here for a reason. And at the same time, and probably the biggest thing for me was actually looking down the, the ditch that I was in and seeing the other lads there. And I actually took a lot of strength from them because they are a good bunch of guys and I add a responsibility to them and they've got responsibility to me and that, imp- that gives you a bit of empowerment and the self t- you get rid of that self-doubt so yeah it's good that it's there it reminds you that you're a human but it's also something that should just tell you right you know take 10 seconds have a look at yourself get rid of the self-doubt and get on with the job at hand
0: and building on that resilience sort of comes across again and again as something that is hugely important um, you know whether that's in watching the TV program of, of how everybody has to sort of keep focused through to, I'm not sure, what it's like in, in real life. And there's sort of physical resilience and endurance, and then there's the emotional resilience that you have to build. How do you train for that? How do you build that muscle? Because it's, it's something that everybody wants and would need, but it feels much harder to, to go after.
1: To, right, resilience, so emotional resilience is basically... It is something that's built over time, I think, but I think a lot of it is to do with taking time to look at yourself and, like, acknowledge your emotions. That's how you become emotionally resilient, is because you actually give your emotions the respect that they deserve. You don't let them take charge of you, and, and, and it is up to you to do that because it's your emotion, but you basically acknowledge it, so you take the time to be like, right, I'm scared. What am I, why am I scared? Oh, right, okay, I'm stood on top of a cliff, that's why I'm scared. <laughs> But it's a then, and then you turn that that emotion you can either let it become a negative so it basically turns you into a, a flapping headless chicken that doesn't know what it's doing or you slow everything down a little bit however you do that is is up to you but you slow everything down and go right i need to start maybe concentrating like not go too close to the edge because i'll fall off or you know if i'm using safety equipment make sure i'm using it correctly it's it's it should be a focus it's about turning the emotion into something that works for you that's I feel is emotional mm-hmm. resilience. It's like not allowing your your emotions to run away with themselves and them control you, you control them.
0: Back to the floor. <coughs> Sorry, it's the chap behind James. I know James keeps putting his hand up, but I'm ignoring you. <laughs> no, nor the last.
2: Um, <laughs> apart from
1: get out of Luton as quickly as possible, is there one life lesson that sticks front of mind for you? Anyone from Lewin? All right, sorry. <laughs> I didn't mean I didn't mean it in a derogatory way. I know Lewis Hamilton got hammered for saying something about Stephen, didn't he? He's right. Um, life lesson I've learned is basically be honest with yourself because I've I've spent a, a long time trying to lie to myself about who I am, and it, it doesn't do you any favors because essentially you know you're lying, and you're lying to you you're lying to you. You are lying to you do not like it when people lie to you, so it's even worse when you're doing it to yourself so it's about essentially being honest with yourself and that's the only thing that got me out of my sticky situation when I left the military because I was trying to pretend to be someone else and I was trying to do a job that I didn't enjoy because I felt that that was the right thing for me that's what I needed to do I've left the military to do something completely different and actually it was probably the one thing that was going to kill me so I actually had to take a moment and actually be like right hang on a minute who are you and What do you really want to do in life? And that's what sort of changed it for me. So I'd say be honest with yourself more than anything else.
0: James, did you have a question? (laughs) (laughs) You
1: Um, you talked about visualization earlier. Um, When you translate that kind of fast forward, now you're out of the military, how do you stop yourself visualizing those horrific situations and kind of flashbacks and affecting your mental health? Um, So, my my PTSD didn't sort of it didn't sort of manifest itself in a Hollywood style PTSD where I was having flashbacks and diving behind cars every time something backfired or something, <laughs> I just felt shit I didn't feel motivated I felt low, I was bored of the job I was doing which was bizarre because it's super exciting um, so now go back to like, like visualising stuff <clears throat> I don't I'm not too fussed about it, I'd, every now and again I'll sit down and I might something might make me remember some stuff and I'll be like, alright, oh yeah, that's something that happened back then, I can probably remember sounds and smells and things like that but it doesn't really, it doesn't have an impact on me because essentially what I have to remember and what we all have to remember is that's in the past, you're not going to change it, no matter how many times you think about it and it, it comes back to the forefront of your mind, it's not going to change, you might as well just park it and use it as a learning tool. You know, if there's anything that you did back then that makes it come to the forefront of your mind that you worry about, that you think you might have made wrong, wrong decisions, fine, you've made a wrong decision, or you might think you made a wrong decision. Use it to make the right decision next time. But but don't, I don't really f- sort of like focus on any. If I remember something, I might like, I pay it. I'm like, oh yeah, I remember that, and that's it. I just I just sort of like push it to the side again. It's not that I'm forgetting it or trying to f- ignore it. And doing it in a negative or or a detrimental way i'm just doing it in it in the i give it the time it deserves but then i don't allow it to sort of like control me but it doesn't i don't really have like major visualizations or flashbacks i try and visualize what's going to happen in the front in the in the future really
0: any more? matt
1: Um, so we 're all big fans of uh, who dares wins in uh, in my family and uh, there've been some incredible contestants on there, several of uh, whom have had quite harrowing backstories that have seem- seemingly driven them to go on the show and I just wondered um, what sense you get of of all the contestants really in terms of the the transition they go through uh, i 'm also interested how long they 're there actually through a through a series and whether you keep in touch with any of them and yeah, really the how how it affects the contestants, I suppose. Um it affects them in lots of different ways. I think it predominantly normally in a good way, I hope. That's normally what happens. They're there each series is differed slightly by a day or two, but the last one was twelve days, so it's twelve days, twenty-four hours a day. It's like a solid it's like an intense course. That's what they come on. It's an intense, we, we we build a we put together a training programme for twelve days and then we just play it out. And if the cameras catch it, they catch it. If they don't, we don't go back and try and do it again. It just it is what it is. Uh, their journey, they some of them are obviously there for longer than others. They are, they're a mixed, obviously a mixed bunch, because that's what makes it interesting. Um, but it does, it does, for, I don't know why, and I don't know, well, I do know why, because it's changed my life. Being in the military has changed my life, and this is a snapshot, and it's very intense in a very short period of time. And it does change their lives to a certain degree. A lot of people end up, leaving the jobs that they're doing and go off and do something absolutely mental, but <laughs> so be it. But it does, it has, I think it has a positive impact on them because essentially it does, although it looks like they're being broke and they're not, they're actually finding out what it is. They're finding out stuff that they tried to ignore and actually it's quite an enlightening thing. They find out that they're actually more resilient than they thought they ever were and they were actually better people than they thought they ever were. There's a lot of people that have a lot of self-doubt within those, you know, those 12 days. And actually, we're not there to break them. We're there to show them that there's there's more potential inside them than they actually ever thought. So, I've, yeah, I hope it's a, a good thing that happens to them because I don't really want... I mean, it's fun for us. We get to be, be nasty, but... <laughs> <laughs> but it is... We are actually... We're actually... Yeah, we're actually... We're, we're, I'm the nice one, actually, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, um, do you know what? I don't think they have... A couple have tried and then figured out... Then they realise that it... It's like a longer version of what we put them through and <laughs> mug it off.
0: They haven't got a, a pass at the front of the queue then. No, so, how did the the television come about? How did uh, SAS Who Does Wins sort of get created and, and your involvement in it, Jason?
1: Right, well, it's someone else's idea, but <laughs> my, how I so I I was I finished I I did a corporate job and I chinned it off because I didn't like it. And then I went back into security. I went into security, so doing like close protection, bodyguarding stuff, which is a really, really bad job, <laughs> and it's not as glamorous as the BBC made it out to be. <laughs> <laughs>
0: no Keeley Hawes <laughs> no, on no, the. There's, uh, there's none of that <laughs> going on. <laughs> yeah,
1: it's and uh, <clears throat> it's and um, I sort of didn't like it. I picked up a job actually. I was going to be st- starting work with an Italian oil exec on a really good contract, and then the price of oil crashed, and then that job just disappeared, and I was properly screwed so i was actually scratching around for work a friend of mine was already working in the tv world basically looking after crews when they went to weird and wonderful environments asked me to go out on a job that he couldn't cover so i went out to uh, a small island off madagascar and i was the underwater cameraman's dive buddy so i was basically just sat underwater in nice warm water checking his air and giving him the thumbs up and that was it <laughs> it was, it was it was awesome.
0: Where, where, do I, where do I sign up for that job? <laughs> where did she sign oh, up for right, that yeah, job? Yeah. I'll,
1: I'll <laughs> um, what he was filming was these four guys, old underwater archaeologists that were diving on pirate shipwrecks. They were like old school pirate shipwrecks. It was, it was awesome. These blokes knew everything about the old school pirates. You could spend hours with them at the bar, and we did, talking to them about pirate history. Anyway... We, we were out there for four weeks and after about three weeks of watching these blokes pick up old teacups, which is proper boring. <laughs> we like, sort of lose interest after. It sounded, sounded cool to begin with and then you just lose interest. And we, me and the cameraman, the bloke called Sam, was sat on the surface and we were like that, just, you know, chuntering away about these old, because they were quite difficult to work with, to be honest. And um, one of the... Ma- one of them come up to the surface as we were sat there, and he was like, I've definitely found something down there. And he was diving on another shipwreck, and we were like, all right. He swam off to go and do whatever he needed to do, and we were like, ah, oh, let's go and have a look. So we went down onto this shipwreck. He's filming me. I'm rummaging around, basically decimating this pristine dive site. <laughs> He's used, like, a paintbrush to move away the silt, and I'm just, like, clawing away at <laughs> <laughs> And then, basically, long story short, I felt, I felt something cold and smooth, and, like, we, we wrestled it out. We had to get him, and the other guy over, Sam, wrestled it out cleared the silt away and then there's this lump of metal sat in front of us and we're like what is that and it was sort of like we we're rubbing it and it was going shiny and it had been carved into it TS and then there was like 1695 and then a load of other numer, like sort of symbols um, sort of we then panicked and realised that we'd basically ruined this bloke's dive site so we sort of like just threw it back in this like hole <laughs> and then we swam up and as we're swimming up he's swimming down Sort of like giving the fuck, and <laughs> we get out and sort of like we we sort of like we might be in the shit here. Anyway, about twenty minutes later, he comes back up and sort of like gets D rigs takes his tanks off and everything, and then sort of like calls us over. He's like, "Come over here," and he's like, "You two, you found that, didn't you?" And we're like, "Yeah, what is it?" And he goes, "I don't know yet, but I think it's like I think it's pretty significant." Anyway, we got the stills from it. He was he was sort of angry but happy at the same time and um, send them off and it turned out that I mean there it is disputed but I'm telling you now it was like it, is the, it was down as the biggest bar of silver ever found and apparently it was on Captain Kidd's lost on his ship that he'd scuttled back in the day and you know, and it all hit the news, and so essentially, what happened then was that was the end of that trip. We'd found treasure; that was cool. <laughs> and I'm flying home, and I'm wondering what my next job is. I'm wondering where I'm going to, you know, where I'm going to find work next. And the TV world's quite—it's—it's it's freelance, so it's people are always moving around. And someone had come back off that that um, job a little bit earlier, gone into another job. He was in a development meeting, then he goes into the channel for this meeting, and they're like, right, okay. Um, this is a great idea. This SAS it wasn't called SAS who days wins at the time, but that's a great idea. We're gonna commission it, throw some cash at it, but where do you find you, where are we gonna find these XSF guys? And this bloke was like, Well, I've just been out in Madagascar with this bloke called Foxy, so you should give him a call, so I land wondering who my next job is and i get a phone call saying do you wanna be on telly? And I was like, Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> There's a bit more to it than that.
0: <laughs> Excellent. And when you're putting the uh, recruits through their paces and and you've got the game face on. Do you ever have any sympathy for them, or is it no. none, at all? none they, at all? They
1: wanted to come on it. <laughs> they don't get pay, They don't get anything out of it either. No pay, nothing. Yeah. I, I find it I find it bizarre. <laughs>
0: yeah. um, so we've got time for one or two last questions from the floor. There's a... and
1: Jason how do you prepare to win in your civilian world now if you're preparing for a business pitch or new opportunity on TV how do you prepare to win today how do I prepare to what sorry win. Win. to win win um, win right okay i always think about what it is i'm going to do and I, can, I always see myself at the you know at the end whatever that may be and then i make sure i know you know i make sure i know what i'm doing you know, I tr- where what, no matter what I do, I make sure I know what needs to be achieved, and I need, I need, I'm sort of like train up in the skills required, and then I put all that to one side, and I just take every step, one step at a time, and I don't worry about anything. I just, I live more in the now, because, and and sort of that comes from the sort of flexible mindset that was being ingrained into me in the in the special forces. It's about living in the now, not worrying about saying that hasn't happened because it hasn't happened, and then when it does happen, it's too late to worry about it, you just deal with it there, and then, and that comes down to making sure you know what you need to do in those situations, so it's in the back of your mind, and then just sort of having a goal, focusing on that, and then just living in a fucking, sorry, living in a, a metre square, and you just, whatever comes into that metre square, you deal with it.
0: I think if you could bottle that, you would be a millionaire. That's yeah, probably the you uh, though, the you? secret to your... Uh... Uh, sorry, down here we had... A...
1: Thanks. Um, so we talked about people and culture and process, so this is a question about technology. Um, what piece of modern tech do you think has had the biggest impact in terms of the military, but potentially special forces, and um, also what sounded good on paper but turned out to be <laughs> completely useless? About the, the radio. is probably the communication is the key to everything. It will be the key to everything on the battlefield and when they started when they made the radio back whenever that was don't ask me when that was that was probably a massively pivotal moment it changed warfare you know you can talk about all the weapons and that but without communications you can't do anything with those weapons so it's, that's key and what hmm, what turned out to be a load of crap do you get given new tech and told to see whether it's useful, like I don't know, night sights or all that that kind of no, stuff? No, because they or? were pretty good. <laughs> they gave us a bit of an advantage. Um, I think uh, I don't know. There's the, I think some of the tech in its infancy was, it was it's good ideas, but in, uh, in the beginning you, you used to be like that. That's what the hell? And you know the drone thing. They, you know. The, the big drones that they use are just—they're awesome. They're a big—they're a big force multiplier. But then they started to try and introduce like tactical ones that you could launch by hand. And at first, they were just—they were absolutely terrible. There was um, a story of me and a friend went on a—we went on one of these courses and you go out—we went out to Vegas. So it's pretty cool. But we were doing this—it's um, like a big hand-launched drone. You you fling it and then someone takes control of it. And we're in a flat desert and there's like literally a one shrub bush. One of the lads fires it off. This thing just does a massive loop. We've, you can't even control, you've lost control. There's something wrong with the tech and it just literally does a loop the loop and then smashes into the only bush <laughs> in the desert and just like literally wrote off. I don't know how much it cost but we wrote it off and they weren't happy. But, and we were like, this tech is flawed, it's rubbish. But it ter- turns out they developed and it's pretty good now. So.
0: Perfect. Got time for one more question after
1: this one. So, uh, at what point did you realise you were famous, and how was that? How did that feel, and what? And how challenging has that been to go from? What does famous mean? Well, you're sitting here in He's front of a tech all these man people, knows and your people name. know. you. <laughs> yeah, that's an. <laughs> but you went from a life of you know covert operations and belonging to an organisation, but you weren't known in the public. Um. Yeah. <laughs> It happened. It sort of happened after the first series at SAS, and it was a bit bizarre. But you sort of like again, it's about taking it in your stride. I'm not going to. It's not. You know, it's it's a it's quite it's a compliment, but it's but it's one. It's it's weird to sort of adjust to. It's weird to sort of take on board, and even now it's a bit weird. It's still weird, but. I don't know, it's, it happened after the first series to a certain degree, and we didn't really know. We, we filmed that first series, and it was great fun. We had, it was awesome fun. But we, I just thought it was going to be another one of those TV shows that goes on, some people that are interested in watching that stuff will watch it, and then that'll be it. It'll just die off, it'll just been an experience. It was fun to do, and I learned from it, and go on and do something else, but then it, it wasn't. It sort of went down quite well, so this sort of stuff happens for me, which is good. <laughs> But yeah, it, just, it sort of did happen overnight to a certain degree, but it's, it's, it's progressed on as we've gone on and done more and more. And it's a weird thing to try and deal with, but you deal with it.
0: So we're going to see you in uh, I'm a Celebrity next no. year. I don't think you'll have that much of a challenge with it, to be honest. Uh, last question at the back.
1: So you talked about working with the Americans and the Canadians and the Aussies and so on, and I guess every schoolboy always wants to know who is the hardest, <laughs> but um, <laughs> I guess m- more is than that, an obvious I- <laughs> answer. <laughs> <laughs> but how did the different nationalities approach things in different ways? Um, so all, they're all, they're all, actually, they're all really good. They're awesome. Um, obviously, the, the Americans have got so much more money so are, their research and development is better than ours because of the cash flow and we get a lot from them we a lot of the kit that we use in the british special forces is american or american developed because they've got the they've got the budget to deal with that but when it comes down to like soldiering we're brits and we train in the uk which is the shittiest place in the world to train and that is why i believe we are still the best soldiers in the world because we're a lot more we we're a lot more rounded and we try to we try to sort of like be good at everything we make sure that we can operate in lots of different environments and do lots of different things different tasks whereas some of the other nationalities concentrate on one thing at one given moment in time whatever might be fashionable at that time. So they become very good at that. But then all of a sudden, like I've said, the battlefield changes. And when it does change, if you're not ready for that change, it can take you completely off guard. So if you suddenly need to spend two weeks in the field carrying heavy kit, if you haven't done that over and over again and it starts to rain and your pants are wet and stuff like that, all the uncomfortable stuff, if you're not ready for that, that's what's going to trip you up. And I think that's why the Brit soldiers... Are still the best in the world because they are used to hardship and they like being uncomfortable.
0: <laughs> so true. Um, so it's been a while since you set a world record or uh, found any buried treasure. So what's the next challenge on the horizon?
1: Um, I'm going in June, fly out to Whitehorse, which is in Canada, do a bit of setting up and then me and a mate of mine are going to We're going to retrace the poor man's gold rush. So essentially we're going to, there's a town in Alaska called Skagway, which is where all the poor people that wanted to find gold went to first. We're going to walk 50 miles over the, there's a trail that goes over a mountain pass into Canada, into a place called Lake Bennett, which is the source of the Yukon where we're going to have our boats waiting for us. And we're going to get into a couple of canoes and paddle the length of the Yukon River, which is about two, well just under 2,000 miles to the Bering Sea. So we're doing that for a couple of military charities weirdly i've done nothing for a military charity like that yet so we figured it was time and it's the last wilderness really on the planet and we're pretty fascinated by that not so fascinated by the grizzly bears hopefully you don't see too many of those but it should be a cool thing to do we're just going to we're not breaking any records we're just yeah. going to do it as an adventure and meet people along the way and see what it's like
0: you're just going to trek 50 miles kayak 2000 miles don't get me wrong i'm thinking about it every day <laughs> So um, uh, Jason's currently fundraising for this, I saw on Twitter last night. Uh, So if anyone's looking for a new personal trainer, uh, you can make a donation and win a one-to-one training session with Jason. So (laughs) seriously, how How hard could it be, right? Brilliant. Um, Please join me in thanking uh, Jason for spending the time with us this morning. It's been an absolute pleasure, and I've definitely had the best privilege of uh, sitting and having a chat with you, Jason, so thank, thank you course. so much. Um, and Jason's kindly agreed that he's going to um, stop around with us for a while, and he's going to um, sign some books, so um, if you can stay with us and would like uh, a signature in your book, please do so. Brilliant. Thank you for joining us.
2: <laughs>
0: this is my don't say anything moment. I don't know if I'm still broadcasting.
1: <laughs> Hello the best one I think, yeah, really brilliant. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> that was so many really good I <laughs> you get the good signs? I Hi, <laughs> hey, yeah. How
2: are you doing? I'm <laughs> I'm oh, do oh, so? I you are. you <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I'm gonna go get my bag anyway. Oh, of course you're stuck. <laughs> Thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome.